Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. This time we have our prospect patriarch, <laughs> our 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 patron of all patrons, David Dayan. Prospect patriarch. A lot of peace. I like that. <laughs> David is uh, executive editor of the American Prospect, and he's uh, on to talk about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Um just we're 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 doing our best to dig through the you know incredibly complicated and numerous provisions of this beast but um there's a lot to it uh and i think you know we we come to a we come to a pretty sensible conclusion about it that it's basically it's pretty good there's some there's some grim compromises but uh better than nothing yeah and these days that's something <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff that massively counterbalances the bad stuff. And the bad stuff can still be fought. It's not a done deal. Yeah, more fighting for sure. It's a really interesting conversation. We cover a whole lot of ground in depth, uh, take on some big conceptual political policy questions as well. And uh, yeah, drinking from the fire hose of, uh, of, of policy wonk knowledge. So I think you'll... You'll feel sated after. Yeah. No more no more thirst after this episode. Or at least damp. But <laughs> without any further ado, let's let's get to our conversation with David right now. Welcome back, David. Um we want to have you on to talk about uh primarily the Inflation Reduction Act, the act that, that already is taking effect, even though it didn't <laughs> uh hasn't even passed the house yet. Uh, month on month inflation as of July uh, was zero, so we're we're golden, baby. Price increases over. Um, that's called the signaling effect. Yes, right. That's right. Uh, Congress is going to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. Oh, we better reduce inflation. Yes, this is <laughs> how in line I, with that legislation. This is how monetarism, as as uh, explained by Milton Friedman, works according to my understanding. <laughs> Um, but so there's a, there's a lot of stuff in this bill. It's massive. It's way, way too big to like dig into every little nook and cranny of it in just, you know, one episode. But I thought we could, you know, start with sort of a broad overview of some of the bigger portions. Um, so David, can you, can you tell us, um, one of the, it's hard to say which is the, which is the most important, but, but up, up there is, uh, tax credits for uh, clean energy investment and production, um, and among those include uh, in- includes a stipulation on direct pay, uh, and and the avil- ability to transfer those tax credits back and forth. So, can you explain to us how that works? Yeah, I mean, I think actually what might be important to start is to step back and think about this in the context of uh, what was intended uh, when Biden came into office sure. and when he released these uh, uh, two, I, I believe they were called the American Jobs and American Families Plans, which constituted the sum total of his agenda. And those had basically everything for somebody within the siloed uh, 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 set of institutions within the Democratic Party. You want, uh, childcare, you got it. You want more housing, you got it. You want, uh, uh, welfare improvements, particularly for families with children, you got it. 
You want, uh, you know, improvements to healthcare, education, uh, uh, and obviously energy and, and, and dealing with the climate. You got it. Um, there ended up being this narrowing effect and it probably, you know, was somewhat salutary because the way that they were trying to do the bill was there was this artificial cap put on how much money you could spend uh, by the likes of Joe Manchin and some of the new Democrats. And they, instead of giving up some pieces of that agenda, they then just, just tried to stuff, uh, you know, 20 pounds into a 10 pound box. And they, they, they tried to create uh, the same amount of policies uh, with by by chipping away at them to the point that they actually might have been quite ineffective. And I think it would have been a, a quite ineffective bill and passed in its entirety. So what do we end up narrowing down to? So but Manchin walks away. He comes back. Uh, he walks away again. And in a in just sort of the the. An explanation of the fact that Manchin knows how professional wrestling works. Like he does this thing at the very end where he walks away and then he does a heel turn and he becomes the good guy again. And even though he has dissipated 90% of the bill because he added about 10% at the end, he is a hero. Like this is perfect media manipulation. Uh, what Manchin has been able to do uh, to show himself off as the good guy, even though he uh, destroyed the the vast majority of this bill. Right. So, um, so that's good context. So, like, like basically he had all the, these handouts to various constituencies and they all got killed except for the climate stuff, which, which uh, right. came through largely unscathed, like most of what they started with. Right. And yeah. We, and I think there are important reasons for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, first of all, we've been trying to deal with energy since at, at least the embargo of 1973. We have rec- we recognized at that time, 50 years ago, that, uh, we were going to have a problem, A, with just supplying enough energy to keep our economy and our people moving. And B, uh, we were having an ecological problem with, you know, at that time it was seen maybe under a different light, but at least since the mid eighties or, or early nineties, it's been seen as a problem of warming the planet. So, uh, since Carter, you know, uh, we have been trying to figure out what to do about energy. Um, so because of that, n- two things. Number one, there's just like this pile up of, of scholarship and policymaking theories around energy that had been there, had been given some sort of rough consensus within the party for a long, long time. This is not something you have on CTC just yet, uh, the child tax credit. This is not something you have on child care yet. This is not something you have on uh, other forms of family care. Certainly not something you have on housing where, uh, you know, I think housing is generally seen as something that you don't do as federal policy. Um, the other thing that's in this bill, the other two sort of major buckets are health care, which, which Democrats have been working on for a hundred years, uh, and, uh, taxes, 
where everybody in Washington thinks they're the number one expert on taxes in America. So uh, these were the three most obvious things to stay in that winnowing process because they had just a lot of policy work that was already done and behind them. The second thing is, is that uh, because this uh, there were some legacy items that are obviously being being added to and cleaned up, all of which are through the tax code. Uh, this was also more familiar, I think, to Washington that we know how to do tax credits. We know how to do the submerged state thing. Right. And uh, uh, it, this was essentially building on an architecture for how to deal with clean energy um, in a way that's different than the sort of New Deal, Green New Deal idea of, you know, adding welfare and being more intersectional about it and using command and control regulations and things like that into uh, the area that that I think that is more markety, that that uh, Democrats were obviously more or certainly the, the right edge of the Democratic Party was much more comfortable with. Um, using the tax code uh, to do this. It was also easier to do through reconciliation. Now, the drawbacks to that are that now the number one engine of climate policy in the United States is the Treasury Department, because they're the ones who set the rules for the tax code. Uh, so the Environmental Protection Agency is like a bit player now in, in the protection of the environment. The Department of Energy is not a major player in energy policy. Uh, the, you know, the Department of Interior is basically being given a bunch of mandates for what they're going to do on oil and gas leasing. So it's the Treasury Department through their rulemaking that, and the IRS more specifically, that is really going to drive uh, uh, whether we get, whether we succeed at this big bet of using the tax code to drive down the cost of carbon free fuels and technologies. Um, so I think that that context is very important. Like, yeah. it's kind of like how policymaking gets done in Washington, uh, particularly in this, in this environment where you have very thin majorities, but, now I will answer your question. <laughs> but before you do, um, actually, is it, is it okay, David, if yeah. you clarify a few things right in there at the end? Sure. Uh, that, explain the role of the IRS and, and, and what, why that will matter. And then maybe for people who aren't so familiar with reconciliation, just a brief statement about that and why this way was easier given that. Right. So uh, what we've done here is basically created a, a good number of tax credits, tax credits for energy production tax credits for uh, solar and wind uh, installation, tax credits for energy efficiency, tax credits for the purchase of electric vehicles, tax credits. Uh, there's this thing called the 45Q tax credit, which is for the production of uh, carbon capture technologies. Um, the whole thing, practically, is, is done through tax credits. Um, there are a few grants and subsidies here and there, but that's not really the province of this bill. It's really through tax credits. So those tax credits have rules, right? And some of them are laid out pretty specifically with bright lines in the congressional statute, but some aren't uh, so much. So like a big example here is the EV tax credits. So uh, what it says is that, you know, we're going to give $7,500 unlimited tax credits at the point of sale 
for any new electric vehicle. And actually used electric vehicles are going to get a $4,000 tax credit. So when you go to buy an EV, they're going to say, well, the list price here is $32,000, but we're going to take $75,000 off the top. You don't have to do it in your taxes. We're going to do it right here at the store. Well, a whole architecture has to be built for what qualifies for that because there were a lot of caveats that were put in at the behest of Joe Manchin uh, for that policy. One is that the cars can't be that expensive. Uh, so it only applies to uh, lower priced EVs, uh, EVs under, I think, is it fifty-five dollars or $65,000? I know for trucks, EV trucks, it's under 80000 but uh, it's even a lower number for EV uh, cars. Um, the second and actually much more important thing is that there are domestic sourcing requirements for qualifying for these EV tax credits. So you have to have, first of all, it has to be produced in the United States in order to get the tax credit. And it has to uh, have a certain amount of uh, internal components like minerals for the batteries and other steel and other components that are sourced either in the United States or in a, I think the, the term is like non-hostile uh, trading partner or something like that. It's basically a way to say not China without saying not China. Um, but all of that is going to have to be adjudicated and it's going to have to survive a lobbying effort where where the auto lobby says, we can't do this right now. There zero cars today would qualify for that credit under the current, under this statute. And they're going to be asking for waivers. And the people who are going to have to decide whether or not to give the waivers are the Treasury Department, not the EPA, not, not any of these other agencies. And so uh, this creates a lot of power in the hands of the Treasury Department. We've seen this over and over, like doing policymaking through the tax code rather than just saying, we're opening a new program. We are, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this with some level of expertise. It's, it's the, the path dependence uh, in part because of reconciliation and in part because there's a comfort level with working through the tax code and tax expenditures um, uh, that creates a source of power within the Treasury Department that is unparalleled uh, with other agencies. And reconciliation, the, the reason obviously this is used is we have two idiots in the Senate caucus that won't change the filibuster rule uh, and, 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 and continue uh, minority rule in the U.S. Senate. But there's one safety valve, which is this thing called budget reconciliation, which was created uh, close to 50 years ago in the Budget Act. Uh, allows one vote every year uh, that uh, only requires a majority vote in the Senate. And this creates really, uh, really perverse implications. Uh, it's the reason why the entire bill was put into one thing rather than doing serial policymaking where, where you just do a child care bill and then you just do an education bill and so on and so on. You can't do that because all of those bills will fail if, if, because Republicans are unilaterally against them. So you have to try to shoehorn this into one thing. And so that creates real barriers to policy, um, and, and, and real opportunities to make errors because now these bills have to be thousands of pages long rather than say, we're just going to, you know, do this one thing on Medicare. Um, so that's, that's basically it. 
And it has to be budget neutral. Like, what's the requirement for it to work in reconciliation? It, it has to be budget neutral outside of the first ten years. So uh, it can it can spend money. I mean, the Trump tax cuts were done within budget reconciliation, and that did uh, cost I think one point five trillion dollars in uh, lost revenue. However. Outside of the first 10 years, it has to be budget neutral. And what they did on the Trump tax cuts is they got rid of a bunch of the tax cuts the year before uh, that 10 year uh, window. And so it's neutral outside of that. Um, so you see these kind of games that get played uh, because of having to adhere to the budget reconciliation rules. Yeah. So back to the probably too complicated question I asked you at the start. <laughs> yeah, the direct pay direct thing. direct clean energy. So so th this is a tax credit for we love tax credits. They're the best folks. We love them um, <laughs> for for like b big time, um, you know, business, uh, not not for consumers, right. but the 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 direct pay. Well, this one you're talking about is for utilities. Yeah, utilities. Right. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to like like me, you know, I, I took advantage right. of the solar tax credit like uh, uh two years ago to, to get, right. and it, it sure incentivized me. I was, you know, lit a fire <laughs> under my behind, but yeah. So utilities, direct pay, transfer credits, what's that all about? Yeah. So, I mean, direct pay was a big, uh, factor in the negotiations. Uh, and wh what that means is that, uh, exactly what it says, you get money <laughs> for, uh, uh, decarbonizing your utility mix. And uh, uh, Manchin was opposed to this, but somehow they managed to say, all right, direct pay is not available for, you know, investor-owned utilities, but public power uh, utilities, which previously weren't allowed to take any kind of tax credit for decarbonization, now gets the direct pay option as well. And uh, uh, this is really an opportunity to really supercharge uh, public power generation in the United States um, in, in a way that I think we fully haven't we haven't fully considered, like how big of a boost this could be potentially for public power. Now, I mean, the barriers to that are you got to find uh, the places where you're going to, uh, you know, site uh, this, this renewable power, uh, you have to, you know, go through the process of getting that up and running it could take years. You have to get the capital investment going, uh, to do that. Um, uh, but, uh, in the end, it could be really, really powerful. Yeah. And so, so, so to clarify, like this is sort of similar to a refundable tax credit for individuals. Am I, is that correct? I, I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll be honest in, in that, uh, you know, there are a lot of parts of the energy piece of this uh, to which, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not fully conversant in every one of them. Um, but uh, I, I believe that is the case. It's, yeah, it's 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 like a refundable tax rate, which, to be clear, it means that, you know, for in the in the case of households, a refundable tax credit means you don't have to have drawn a, a salary uh, above the tax credit in order to, to get it. So you can get back more in the in the, in the refundable tax credit than you have than you owe in taxes, right? Yeah. And so for this, it's that 
if you get X amount of dollars a ton, it doesn't matter, you know, what, what your, your, your full picture is as a business and, and how much taxes you owe, you just get it all. Yeah. And on the transfer credits, I don't know, maybe you want to skip that one, but, um, I, I, that's definitely not my area of expertise. Okay. Um, how about loan guarantees this, this, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. And we had a good piece from, uh, Lee Harris about this. Yeah. So, so supposedly like, so the department of energy can guarantee loans, which, is, which sort of reminds me of like, um, you know, the way that the, uh, various housing, uh, agencies will guarantee mortgage loans. Um, you know, they'll be insured by the federal government. You have $8.6 billion appropriated for that, which will supposedly allow them to guarantee $290 billion in loans. So that's like a that, potentially enormous like quantity of private capital that's like more sort of incentivized, maybe. But like, what's the story there? Yeah, it's there. There are actually a couple different parts of this. And I think the closest analog is what we saw in the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act. In other words, the, the Obama stimulus, which uh, had a significant loan making authority for green energy, by the way. Tesla uh, made itself available uh, to get some of these loans. Uh, we remember it because of the word Solyndra, which was an energy company that ended up going bankrupt. And uh, that was used as a tagline by Republicans forever of, you, you know, you wasted federal money on these loans to Solyndra and, and they went bust. Um, I think there's a bit more of an appetite uh, to be entrepreneurial now, although I, I'm sure like if there's a bust in any of these loans uh, that, that the Republicans will be right on it. But it seems like uh, Democrats obviously were undeterred by that uh, experience. Um, so, yeah, you have a couple different areas. So there's these Department of Energy loan guarantees, which, as you talked about, uh, can lever up. Uh, money and, and, and bring private capital. And also it's like you recycle that money through the economy. And when you get, when you get some back, when you get the loans back with interest, you can continue to do that. That's not true of the, uh, uh, energy department loans, but it is true of the green bank, which is a whole separate part of this, which is, I believe capitalized at $27 billion, which gives working capital where they can start putting out loans. Uh, and then as they make money, it's a bank. So you can recycle those loans and continue it through. So you can see almost 10 times the benefit of the 27 billion that you've put into it initially. And here's where, um, the, the sort of budgetary strictures that the media puts on this process doesn't really tell the whole story of how much investment potentially goes toward uh, these, these kinds of things within the bill, because when they talk about the Department of Energy loan guarantees or the Green Bank, they say it's a $27 billion Green Bank. Yeah. But the expectation is you'll get hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of economic activity out of that bank. And so, uh, uh, you know, you have the potential, even though there's $433 billion in actual spending in this bill, you have the potential of getting close to a trillion dollars in public and private investment. Uh, and, and most of it is going towards clean energy technologies or at least cleaner energy technologies, I think is the best way to yeah. put it. Wait. So let me, so let me just review here to make sure I've got this right. So you have the, the loan guarantee program, 
which basically right. is saying that the government is sort of insuring these loans to particular companies and therefore reducing the interest rate that they would have to pay, much as if federal insur federally insured mortgages tend to have a much lower interest rate if you qualify for them. And then you have this green bank, the, the green accelerator, uh, clean energy technology accelerator, which is just like a sort of venture capital fund type of thing. It's like you're taking, you yeah, I mean, that's actually making the loan. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it's not guaranteeing the loan. Yes. It's actually making the loan. So yeah. And the difference there is that, you know, that becomes sort of a VC firm that can then, you know, pay off those loans and then make more. Yeah. And oh, so you can sort of endlessly recycle that. And a quick point on the Solyndra thing, you know, if if the government is getting in the business of uh, making, uh, you know, loans to sort of moonshot companies, you want some failures, you know, like Absolutely. You, you are trying to do something that private companies are not are not stepping into the, the breach to do. And so you want to be like funding the totally crazy, like like not boondoggle we work nonsense, but like the the really uh, uh, just aggressively optimistic type of thing that just might work out. You know, it's like a small chance. And so if you you should have a number of failures in your portfolio, even if you're a venture capitalist, but especially if you're the government, you you want to be taking some risks. And if your portfolio has almost no failures, as the Obama um, investment thing did, is that you're being too conservative. You're not giving the true wackadoos who might have the, you know, the, the new, you know, magic fusion right. reactor or whatever. Like they <laughs> you're absolutely right. Uh, and that is something that in her reporting, uh, Lee has, has talked about and talked to people who have repeated that back to her. Uh, interestingly, um, it, it's, it's almost the, uh, the, the sort of, the centrist guys uh, who are on the side of these kinds of green banks and green accelerators, it's people like Mark Warner and Chris Coons who were at the forefront of this in the House and people like Tom Malinowski, who's a, a, a problem solver uh, from New Jersey in the Senate, in, in the House. I, I, I said Warner and Coons were in the House there in the Senate. Um, uh, those were the champions of this. And, and maybe because they do understand it in that in that sort of framework of uh, this is sort of a way to uh, attempt to lure in investment for technologies that otherwise would be shut out of the market because they're too crazy or too risky or too uh, unsubstantiated and uh, try to see if they succeed. And, and the, 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 the benefit of, of even one of these succeeding Compared to the status quo of trillions of dollars having to pay on, on fires and floods and this and that and the other thing. Um, if, if, if one of these pans out and you get a moonshot that, that works and you get it to massively reduce, uh, and mitigate the, the worst effects of climate, uh, change, it, it's, it's a huge economic win, even though it won't show that sort of in the numbers. Yeah. Right. I, I think, you know, you should probably mention, um, because I, I'm curious, David, what you think of some of the critiques or at least the mixed emotions, mixed feelings that, that activists and leftists have had. Um, but before we get to kind of, 
mansion and cinema and kind of some of what people call the poison pills or some of the, the things mm-hmm. that, that were, you know, carved out for, for the fossil fuel industry. Uh, don't you think we should relish a little bit uh, mansion making McConnell look stupid? I think you should just remind people a bit about how that went down just so we can have a little bit of heartwarming glee before we get into the, the negative stuff. Well, interestingly, uh, I, my reporting, because I'm, I'm actually writing about this, this whole rigmarole uh, for our next issue. My reporting has found that it was kind of an accident. So oh, I'm um, glad it doesn't make Mansion look smart. Thank you. <laughs> That's good. So here's here's what went down. So uh, as we know, I think like sometime in the middle of July, Mansion walked away from these talks, and uh, he then became sort of the lone wolf who was blocking uh, the uh, a decent planet for for every future uh, human being on Earth, and. Uh, and he couldn't handle that, right? So, so he, he comes back to the table after a few days of, of being really not, it wasn't like sort of activist pressure, but it was pressure from, you know, things like the New York Times op-ed page and his colleagues that really, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't handle not being seen as a nice guy to the elites. So, uh, he comes back to the table and Schumer and him work on this and they work on it. To the point where they think they have a deal the week before that we all know about it. And they're doing all this in secret. And so they have this deal and they, uh, the way that that week is set up is that they know they're going to pass, uh, uh, they, they're going to try to pass two things. One is the CHIPS Act and the other is the PACT Act, both of which were signed, uh, this week. And, uh, they thought that they were going to release the text because they were furiously writing the text. They thought Wednesday we're going to get that text done. They figured Monday they were passing chips and Tuesday they were passing the PACT Act. And then Wednesday they would do it. So it was going to be after everything was done uh, that they would finally uh, get this going. What ends up happening is there's bad weather in, uh, in, in I think, Kentucky and, and parts of the country. And so Monday is a wash. They, they can't work on Monday. And so it takes until Tuesday to pass, or I think it actually took till Wednesday to pass the, the, the CHIPS Act. And then only a couple hours later, they, uh, they, they introduce, uh, the, the, the deal. Now here's why that's important. Mitch McConnell had been saying, I'm going to stop the CHIPS Act if you try to pass reconciliation i am i am not going to move forward i'm going to hold this bill with uh, semiconductor funding hostage uh so that you don't do other things i don't want and Man- when mansion walked away from the table mcconnell relented he said okay we can pass chips now now that you're not doing anything and so they go underground and start neg- you know mansion and schumer go underground and start negotiating this deal But the timeline wasn't supposed to be that close. It wasn't supposed to be chips is passed. And then like an hour later, they introduced this bill that looked like like a real F you. Right. That looked like but it wasn't planned that way. It was supposed to be a couple days in between. Um, And that's why uh, uh, McConnell and the Republicans in a fit of rage took hostage the PACT Act, which was supposed to have already been passed uh, under that old timeline. But it wasn't passed until after the announcement. And so then they hold, held it hostage and, and looked really bad for a week <laughs> until they relented and passed it. 
So uh, all of that was kind of accidental. But uh, it is still the case that uh, McConnell got outplayed. They kept right. it under their hats, right? I mean, that shows yeah. that that they that they were trying to trick him, right? That they or well, I mean, it it. I think the reason they kept it secret is that they didn't want anyone else involved in the process. Not the White House, not uh, other Democratic senators. They didn't want anyone to know what the heck was going on uh, because Manchin was too too. Uh, you know, nervous about being clubbed in the head again, I think, is, is, is the reason that they made it secret. Um, so yes, the side benefit was certainly, uh, you know, letting, letting the other bills play out and, and without McConnell knowing about it. But I think there were other reasons to keep it secret too. And to be clear, th- this only works because the, the- McConnell was holding his own interests hostage as well, right? Like the, these two bills are bills Republicans kind of supported because uh, one is, you know, for veterans and the other is against China, I guess, right? Like, or, or for, so how would you explain those two bills very briefly? Because people might be thinking, wait, the Republicans are in favor of passing things? What's, what's going yeah, on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the CHIPS Act was. I mean, it's essentially a subsidy for large companies. So, you know, yeah, sure. Hell yeah. Republicans are on board with it. I mean, there's a good reason for it. We, we need a domestic semiconductor industry in the United States. And, and there are other good things in that bill, but that is, that had been worked out through bipartisan compromise for a year and a half. So, uh, there were a lot of Republicans who were in support of that bill. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, McConnell didn't have much of a choice. On, on the PACT Act, which is about, uh, getting coverage for veterans who are exposed to toxic burn pits, um, and making sure that they automatically receive, uh, healthcare for that rather than having to, you know, try to prove that they were exposed and, and what have you. Um, that was a major priority of the president in, uh, the State of the Union address. Uh, his son, uh, Bo, was exposed to a toxic burn pit and then died of cancer. And we don't have the exact uh, connection between the two. But, uh, you know, I think Biden certainly believes that uh, that is why his son died. And so that was a personal project. And that got 84 votes on, on the uh, Senate floor. Uh, in fact, it had already passed. And the only reason it was coming back was because of a technical change, something around, uh, you know, how spending measures had to originate in the House. There was a tax measure uh, that that the Senate stuck in that was actually, you know, not through not part of protocol. And so they just had to do a technical change and pass it again. It had already passed with 84 votes. It was the same exact bill with that tax measure taken out. And Republicans were like, Hey, you're, you're trying to save the planet. We're pissed off. So we're not going to vote for this. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, this was part of just an epically bad couple of weeks for the Republican party. Um, uh, and, uh, that was, that was one of the, maybe the worst, uh, examples of that. That's some, just tr- some truly terrible, like vote whipping from whoever's in charge of that to be like, cause it did pass. And so, so now Democrats get to have their cake and eat it too. Where it's like, oh, we get to run ads saying they voted against healthcare for wounded veterans and have the, uh, and we have that healthcare for wounded veterans. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, just an epic fail on the part of, uh, the, uh, Republicans on that one. So now let's talk about, uh, 
mansion and the fossil fuel industry and, and what's in the bill that maybe we, we had to swallow. Um, and then sure. maybe also what, what cinema got in there at the last minute too. She, she, she wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, stick up for the little guy, private equity. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> tell us, well, let's, <laughs> tell us let's, about this. let's start with mansion. So, um, you know, his price in sort of general terms was that you can't single out one energy, uh, one form of energy over the other. Of course, he does that, but in the opposite way that I think most most Democrats wanted. Um, so uh, he said, you know, you can't get rid of fossil fuel tax credits. Um, you're going to have to give me uh, benefits for things like hydrogen fuel cell cars, uh, which, you know, are a dubious uh, technology from a standpoint of, of, of being an energy uh, benefit because it's like really energy intensive to create hydrogen. Um, but those are, are now qualified for the EV tax credit, for example. Um, there is a massive increase in carbon capture technology, which is, you know, uh, it's we're probably going to need some form of direct air capture if we're going to get down uh, uh, enough carbon out of the atmosphere to 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 mitigate climate change. Um, and this is kind of a moonshot looking, you know, we expand the credit so that maybe we get. But what that does is two things. Number one, it prolongs the use of really dirty energy in the hopes that you can uh, fix it. Uh, a, a sidelight to that is that it used to be you have uh, like the bill initially as written was the carbon capture has to get 75 percent or more of the carbon out of that particular technology. Now it's like you have to make a good faith effort to get the 75 percent out. So that that's kind of ripe for abuse. Um, and then the third thing, which which uh, Lee Harris once again wrote about today, is that there's one area where carbon capture is already viable as a technology, and that is in the production of corn ethanol, which is environmentally destructive for a bunch of other reasons that go well beyond the carbon that it produces. And so the first in line for these expanded credits is probably the the corn ethanol industry to build pipelines to get the carbon from the various corn ethanol plants over to some place underground where they can store it and inject it. So, uh, uh, you know, that's another example of what Manchin did. The one that everyone's talking about, of course, is, uh, with respect to, uh, federal permits for, uh, federal lands, uh, uh drilling oil and gas, uh, uh, permits. Um, so what happens? And this is not, really in keeping with Manchin's alleged all of the above approach because he puts uh, oil and gas over that of renewables in this in this deal. He says that the government must make available for sale, uh, I believe it's 60 million acres of onshore land and uh, 2 million acres of offshore land every year before they can site one acre of uh, land for solar or wind or some other form of renewables. Um, uh, you know, it's it's very unlikely that drillers will want that land. Uh, um, most drilling is done on private land these days. Uh, the, the kind of all of the public lands have been picked over pretty much. Yeah. And uh, even if they did buy this stuff, they would probably keep it in reserve so they can say they have proven reserves. Um, uh, so it's, it's somewhat unlikely that a lot more drilling will happen because of this, 
but it definitely blocks the use of renewables on this land. And renewables can happen, of course, anywhere. There doesn't have to be oil underground for public lands to use renewables. And uh, one thing that I've, I've read about is that particularly offshore with wind, like the areas like in the Gulf of Mexico are so ridden with platforms and oil rigs and stuff that that all the good land for wind is 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 basically crowding out, uh, crowded out by 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 oil and gas infrastructure. And so, uh, you know, I think that's a pretty negative impact of this yeah. of this bill. And then and then the final thing with Mansion is there's a side deal. And uh, the side deal is something that you couldn't do in reconciliation because it's regulatory in nature. And that is uh, it's it's very uh, blandly called permitting reform. And what that actually means is that uh, uh, they want to accelerate the uh, the permitting of various projects. Now, uh, a lot of progressives say, well, yeah, we need to accelerate uh, renewable energy projects and we need to, to do that quickly. Um, uh, the, the real barrier to permitting, there's two things here. Number one, the real barrier to permitting is resources like the, the, the Bureau of Land Management and, 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 uh, the EPA and all the, uh, all the federal agencies that deal with the National Environmental Policy Act and other things don't have enough people to do the environmental reviews and the other permitting reviews that you need to do. And, Nothing in, we only have a one page summary of what's going to be in the permitting reform bill, but it doesn't look like there's any money for the federal agencies to actually do any of that. And I actually talked to Pramila Jayapal today and she said, well, that's something we can put in into that bill that we want uh, is enough money to actually do the permitting. Um, the second thing is that there's a, a part of the one page summary that just says complete the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Uh, and what is the Mountain Valley Pipeline? It is a, a natural gas pipeline that's supposed to take two cubic million feet of gas per day from West Virginia into areas of, of Virginia. It's been fought for several years by, by residents of West Virginia. And, uh, but Manchin's constituency is, is more the people who own that pipeline and he wants to get it done. And he's doing it in an interesting way. It's actually interesting for Ryan, who has, who has talked about, uh, you know, ending judicial review. Uh, that's essentially how Manchin is going to get about this. He, he, he wants to take the judicial review for the Mountain Valley pipeline away from the Fourth Circuit, which has been ruling against it over and over and over again, and give it to the D.C. Circuit, which generally gives a lot of deference to federal agencies over these kinds of policies. So that's his way of getting the Mountain Valley pipeline completed. And it makes you think that, well, this whole thing is a ruse to get a bunch of, you know, fossil fuel infrastructure built uh, and once you build it, it's probably going to be pretty lasting and it's going to be used. So that's a, a, a big problem, too. There are other things that are problematic, but uh, those are the big ones. And then what about Kirsten Cinema? So, you know, I mean, the whole thing was developed with Manchin and Schumer. And then it gets thrown into everybody's lap. And uh, most Democrats are like, thank God we can do something. Yes, I'll pass this. <laughs> Uh, but but Kirsten Cinema doesn't go out like that. She needs she's a diva and she needs to put her her, her stink on it. So uh, what did she do? She 
First of all, there was uh, in the initial tax measures, which we haven't talked about a lot, um, there were two things that she objected to. One was there was a uh, change to the carried interest uh, provision, which allows big hedge fund and private equity managers to uh, take their capital gains, but not pay the capital gains tax or not pay the ordinary income tax rate, but to pay the capital gains tax rate, even though it is their ordinary income. Um, now, my view is, is that that was put in so cinema could take it out. Like it wasn't even a full closure of that loophole. Like it probably wouldn't have done very much. Um, uh, it was basically just changing the, the timeline for which you could call something a long-term capital gain. You would just have to hold it for a little while longer. And private equity firms probably w- would have done that. So, uh, I think it actually, my analysis, my CBO analysis it, is it would have created zero dollars in revenue over 10 years. So, uh, I don't weep for the clo- the, the loss of that. And really, I do think it was just a red herring. It was, it was put there so cinema could say, I got rid of it. Um, that's number one. The, the other thing that she did, which was much more impactful was there's a corporate minimum tax in this bill. And it's based on something that Elizabeth Warren did during the primaries. Uh, it's not based on the profits that you show to the IRS. It's based on the profits that you put in financial disclosures and show to your investors. Uh, it's called a book profits tax. Um, and, uh, you know, presumably you want to show to your investors, I made a lot of money, right? Well, now you're taking a 15% minimum on that rate that you show. Uh, however, uh, what Cinema did is she added uh, uh, one major loophole uh, uh, around something called bonus depreciation and saying that doesn't count for the purposes of the 15 percent uh, tax. And that's going to create a situation where you'll see, you know, something like a manufacturer like GE is probably not going to pay 15 percent because they're going to use that bonus depreciation uh, uh, measure. Uh, the other thing was isn't was related to private equity in the bill. It said. If you're a portfolio company uh, of a private equity firm, one of the companies owned by private equity, and uh, this this minimum tax is limited to companies that show a billion dollars or more in profits. Um, if if the sum total of all the companies that this private equity firm owns is over a billion dollars, you're all subject to that fifteen percent minimum. Well, Cinema said, "No, you're not. <laughs> you're, you're you're not going to be subject to that." <laughs> Um, and that would have been a good way to sort of tax conglomeration. Like it was, a, it was almost like a tax on monopoly, if you think about it in that sense. Right. And so that got thrown out. Um, and that was a much more impactful thing, a much bigger benefit to her private equity masters, uh, than, than, than the carried interest thing. Yeah. Bummer. Had to make a few, <laughs> a few compromises to sort of get it over the finish line in a 50, yeah. 50 Senate. Um, I think, you know, we've got a few, a few minutes left here, but, um, <clears throat> maybe worth thinking about, you know, uh, the fact that this, this is, you know, for all of its warts and compromises and whatnot, by far the biggest climate bill ever passed, uh, in the United States. And, um, you know, previously we had in 2010 Waxman Markey, uh, a cap and trade 
uh, thing that that failed in 1993. I think it was Bill Clinton had a sort of carbon tax thing that he was trying to pass. That also went down in the Senate. Um, This one is just it's all carrots, no sticks. We're not. Well, not entirely. There's a methane fee. The royalties on those. uh, the 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 leases on public lands have gone up, which will reduce the profitability of any of those things that are developed. But yeah. fundamentally, like the big money is just like subsidizing the the piss out right. of out of green zero carbon energy and even nuclear power. Um, yeah. So, like, what do you think this uh, tells us about sort of the politics of like climate policy and you know how that? Um, it like reflects the thinking in the democratic coalition. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, it, it, it really did evolve. Um, interestingly, the first thoughts about the Green New Deal, I mean, even before it was called that, uh, you go back to like what Van Jones was talking about in like the mid 2000s. He was talking about green jobs. He was the first, he kind of coined that term. That we're going to talk about climate change in the context of job creation. That's how we're going to sell this. Um, that stuck. That pretty much stuck all the way through, right? Then there was the Green New Deal, which initially was a lot more New Deal-like in the industrial policy sense. This idea that we're going to actually, you know, make it the policy of the United States that we are going to become a leader in green energy. We're going to subsidize it. We're going to build uh, uh, industries that can export it to the rest of the world. We're going to become the leader in this technology. Then there was another sort of a separate aspect of FDR-like policies that were put into the Green New Deal, and it was more the welfare side of, of uh, 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 of FDR's New Deal. And it was saying like, well, if we get affordable housing to everybody, uh, and build density, then, uh, there, there's a, there's a climate benefit to that. And if we invest in mass transit and get more cars off the road, there's a climate benefit to that. Medicare for all was in there. Medicare for all was, was, was in there as well. Uh, so we're all, I mean, this, this is what became, formed the basis of Build Back Better, right? With its childcare and education and all these other benefits and, and, you know, the, 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 uh, uh the civilian climate core, which is like, we're going to create jobs for people, uh, guaranteed jobs that, uh, for people to go into climate. Um, there was this sort of intersectional idea about it that we're, we're, you know, the way to, uh, decarbonize the economy is to transform it and to, uh, give people much more security and safety net, uh, uh, uh help, uh, along the way. Oh, the job and, guarantee. We don't forget the jobs guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Then that comes into contact with Congress, right? <laughs> and um, uh, so, uh, and and as I was saying, sort of at the beginning, Congress fell back on what it was comfortable with, and what it was comfortable with was using the tax code to to uh, more of the industrial policy side to use the tax code to use green banks and to leverage private capital and to subsidize green energy. And the welfare stuff pretty much fell out. The only thing that really survives that you could credibly call a welfare policy 
is the extension of what was in the American Rescue Plan of uh, subsidies for the Affordable Care Act exchanges, which makes them truly affordable. It, it, it ensures that nobody who uses those exchanges will pay more than 8.5% of their income on uh, health insurance. And it, it's interesting how that survived and child tax credit didn't because it was the same exact impulse that we're going to put these in the ARP and they're going to become so popular that it's going to be impossible to get rid of them. And uh, for the child tax credit, that just didn't happen. Like, like, yeah, we can get rid of it. <laughs> we have no problem getting rid of it. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe because it was too short. Maybe because uh, you had one member, Joe Manchin, who thought people were buying drugs with it. Uh, it you know, what, what, come up with your own reason. Yeah. But the, the, the ACA subsidies worked because, first of all, they were for two years. So they were a little bit longer. Second of all, they set up this perfect cliff where they would have expired at the end of this year and people would have started getting uh, notes in the mail in October, right before the election, that said your health insurance is going up by 50%. And Democrats did not want 13 million stories of families that were getting this kind of uh, thing in their, in their mail. And so that was able to get over the line. That's extended for three more years. Um, but, you know, as a welfare reform, it's, it's pretty weak beer, right? Yeah. You're, you're, it's, it's more of a middle class reform is what it really is. It, 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 it enhances the subsidy. So there's no cliff anymore if you earn over four times the poverty level. So if you think that the big problem in America were people earning four times more than the poverty level, this is the bill for you because like this is where, uh, the energies are. But if you think that poverty is the actual problem and, uh, you know, eliminate, eradicating it in a way that was demonstrably useful, like in the child tax credit, which, which lowered, you know, even though it has uh, implementation problems, it did lower child poverty by something like 35 to 40 percent. Um, you know, that, that fell by the wayside. And so what does this ultimately say? I mean, this is kind of, I'm, I haven't fully formed my answer to this of what this ultimately says about the party and the coalition, but I think it is a lot about path dependency. So, you know, we, we, we use the tax code for solar, uh, installations and for EV tax credits in the past. And every year they had to be renegotiated uh, because we didn't do it over the long term. So the fix here is we're doing them for the long term and we're enhancing them in a way that uh, can really build uh, new industries in America. Uh, that is the very market friendly way in which we're, we're going to try to <laughs> mitigate climate change and reduce carbon emissions. Well, that, yeah, that's what I want to ask, uh, David, because this is reminding me so much, I don't know about you, Ryan, of our conversation with Nikhil Saval about the, the miracle bipartisan bill on PA that got through. Because um, he also said he thought much of that was because of the path dependency point, right? Because of the architecture was familiar. And I asked him, I said, well, what, what do you mean it's familiar to, to the uh, legislators? Um, like, what, why is that helpful here? Why, why are the Republicans doing good things? Explain this to me. And, and it sounds like what you're saying here is something um, that 
Nikhil mentioned, which is that like the lobbyists, the interest groups, everyone is used to policies looking like this, and that's happened in the past in a similar way, and everyone can get on board for that reason. And I'm still so confused how much of that is, as you say, because it's market incentives and it's ideological and it has to do with like their comfort with uh, the ideological side of it. Right? Because it, it's like, oh, we believe in market incentives. Or is it a kind of habitual way of doing politics literally, procedurally, with the, the, the different interest groups and, and with the kinds of setups structurally and institutionally that already exist rather than something new that you could get blamed for or taking a risk on a, on a new idea? Like, what's your sense of, I, of where I, ideology fits in and where just like habit and non-ideological things come in here? It's a really important question. I think it's both. So part of it is, is habit forming. You know, as I said, we've been working on healthcare since Teddy Roosevelt and there's a whole hundred year architecture of people who know everything there is to know about healthcare. And they're also, even at the individual level, like, you know, we haven't talked about the fact that this finally uh, allows at least a beginning of negotiation of drug prices in Medicare. And that was the result. I mean, this is a, a terrible version of it, but we can talk about that later. But that was a result of a very long fight within the Democratic Party to come up with the parameters that found a consensus. And it didn't start this year and, or in this Congress. It actually was a big fight in the in the 2019-2020 Congress. It took two years for them to get this thing called H.R. 3, which was their low, uh, Drug Price Reform Now Act or something like that. It, uh, it was named after Elijah Cummings because he was big on drug price reform after he died. Um, uh, that so that, you know, there was a whole architecture around that. And there were people who, who, who knew what they were doing on that. And, uh, similarly, like some of the tax measures that are in here, um, you know, the corporate minimum tax was something, like I said, a holdover from the Warren campaign where there were a lot of policy people who, who had a lot of stake in that. Um, uh, you know, uh, we didn't talk about funding the IRS, to the tune of $80 billion over 10 years, which is supposed to net at least $125 billion uh, over that same time period, uh, the, the Republicans have been gutting the IRS for about 40 years. And so this was a, a, a very tantalizing thing that Democrats have wanted to do for a long, long time. And on energy, it's the same thing. Uh, and so I, I feel like uh, there was, you know, it was almost like, yeah, we wanted to do childcare for 10 years, but you got to wait your turn, right? I mean, like, there's, like, we, we're, we're, we're backed up here, uh, with, with all the failures of the last 50 years of policymaking. Let's, let's run before, you know, walk before we can run. Uh, some of it I do think is ideological. I don't know that, uh, the sale has yet completely been made on the, uh, cash assistance just give people money kind of quality of the child tax credit. I don't think that the forces within the Democratic Party, and I'm talking about the blob, right? The think tanks and the, the observers and, and, and economists and things like that. I don't think that they've totally gotten on board with the idea, even though it's, there's now a demonstration project that was very successful. I don't think they totally are on board with if you just give poor people money, they will spend it in a way that is uh, right for them. And you will lower poverty. Um, I don't think that 
And particularly this is true because the, the, the weirdness of reconciliation and the artificial spending cap really made these, these policies bad, like, uh, childcare, uh, home and community paced care, paid leave. Those, the, 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 the actual design of those programs were not ready for prime time. And it was because you know, I mean, Matt Brunin talks about this all the time, like like these bills had really massive holes in them. And uh, it was because of you had to use budget reconciliation process, number one, and because uh, you had to fit them into this very ill-fitting uh, cap of how much money you could spend on them. And so they didn't start them for two years. I mean, we, we still see this in this bill, right? I mean, the, the drug price... Negotiation on Medicare doesn't start till 2026. That's absurd. Like it's after the next presidential election. Uh, even the, uh, uh, the, the $2,000 senior out of pocket cap, I believe doesn't start till 2025. Like, what are you doing? Like, that is the worst idea I've heard of that, that you would say we, yeah, I mean, to this week, Every Democrat is blaring, finally, we are going to lower drug prices for the American people. And the American people aren't going to see it for three to four years. Like, that is just terrible politics. And um, so uh, I, I don't even know where I was with this. But uh, it, it, as I said, it was it's kind of a combination of, you know, the institutional forces in our, our very siloed Democratic Party being bigger on the healthcare and climate sides, and also ideologically, uh, the 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 design and 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 even thrust of these programs not quite being ready for prime time. I just have uh, maybe one more question, if you've got time, David. Mm-hmm. Um, the I'm seeing a lot of sort of sour grapes about this bill. Uh, you know. <clears throat> From from various sort of uh, people on Twitter, uh, movements, foundations. There was a there was a article in the Guardian saying that the bill is maybe worse than nothing, um, <laughs> which strikes me as like preposterously wrong. Uh, but you know it it is compromised, but it also like it seems to me like lays out the next decade of climate activism in a way that, that it's, it's not perfect, you know, like, like you, um, you could criticize a lot of the ways that this could sort of go sideways if, if we don't, uh, you know, take care of it. But it's also, you know, a lot of these, uh, leasing provisions are stuff that you could fight. Uh, you could, you could potentially prevent, a lot of these uh, oil and gas leases from happening. And uh, by the same token, you know, with well, all of the. Maybe, maybe unless the permanent reform is really bad. Well, it, um, I mean, it's a. But, but let me address. That. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I think the way to look at this bill is in the context of industrial policy. And, and it's not surprising that that activists are more inclined toward the keep it in the ground philosophy, which has a scientific basis to it. Um, uh, But one of the reasons for that is that we haven't told the story very well of industrial policy, right? I mean, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation is not something that trips off the tongue (laughs) for, for most activists today. 
uh, something like the Homeowners Loan Corporation as a way of where government literally bought up all the loans of foreclosed homes and uh, refinanced them and actually made a profit on it and saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people from from uh, homelessness a during fifth, the Depression. A fifth of all the mortgages in the country. They, they That's right. That's right. So we just, we haven't told that story very well. I mean, I think the prospect has tried to tell that story pretty well. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, our Green New Deal issue had a whole thing on the Reconstruction Finance Corporation and, and was very much on, on this subject. Uh, uh, I think there are, there are a couple questions around the bill that I think are going to be interesting to see in the future. Um, you know, one is if this, this big bet on reducing carbon emissions through creating industries is going to work. I mean, uh, it, it's, it probably will work. The demonstrations that we have for solar and wind show that it will work. Um, but we're scaling up to a level that we haven't before. And, uh, you know, uh, our, our industrial policy engine is a little bit rusty, I think, in the United States. So we'll, we'll see if this works. I think the second big question, and we're going to be reporting on a lot of this in the, in the near future, is are these green jobs going to actually be good jobs? Yeah. And I, I think that is a critical uh, uh, point here. There are prevailing wage statutes within a lot of these tax credits, uh, but it's a little bit ill-defined. There is nothing on union neutrality. The last uh, major company that the U.S. government stood up with loan guarantees that was super successful and is now uh, home to the richest man in the world, Tesla, is a non-union company that is pretty uh, pretty vicious on its own right, workers, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Um, so we don't want to follow that path. Like like that would not be a good outcome here. Uh, we need more of a path of the Walter Ruther uh, 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 GM rather than Tesla. And th- those are really the two options here. And government, because it's providing these resources – really has a role to play in that. It, it really can say, and it, it is saying it, but it's saying it in a vague way, like these have to be good jobs and, and, and these have to be high paying. Uh, and and uh, what it isn't saying is these have to be union jobs, which you could say and should say. But uh, so those are the questions for me. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh, it it is kind of a new way of thinking. It's easily kind of uh, demonized as corporate welfare. You know, if, if you're you're giving money to companies to produce green power, you could call that, you know, a bailout if you want. You could call it corporate welfare if you want. Uh, it's probably not the right way to look at it. And uh, it's going to require, I think, some 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 education on on how this works, how this has worked in our history and and how it could work in the future. Yeah. If I may, just one final question about the IRS, because there's been a little bit of uh, 
debate on the left, especially with there was a chart shown about, you know, where the, you know, the currently underfunded IRS seems to target poor people. It seems to focus, especially in the South, there was a whole little map and everything. Um, and so there was this debate about, well, giving more money to the IRS, if they keep those enforcement practices up, just means more harassment of poor people. Um, What's your evaluation of uh, of this? Because it obviously seems good. We need the IRS to go after, you know, uh, where the money's at—the rich people and the big corporations. But how do well, you respond to that that problem? There, I mean, the IRS commissioner has said that that none of this money will go towards any kind of auditing of anyone who makes less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. And I think it's important to understand why poorer people are targeted disproportionately under the current kind of gutted structure of the IRS. It's because it's easier, right? I mean, it's like, it's easier to see whether or not someone is violating the earned income tax credit than it is to go through a very complex, you know, uh, set of offshore locations where money is being stashed. I mean, you need that money in order to make those, those big efforts against tax cheats. And so it is, I think, likely even beyond the guarantee, whatever you want to make of it, of the IRS commissioner, uh, it is likely that that money will be put toward, uh, you know, higher income efforts. Um, one problem, and we've written about this at the prospect, is that the IRS commissioner is a Trump holdover right now. <laughs> His name is Charles Reddig. And uh, the last time Charles Reddig was in the news, it was because the IRS was harassing James Comey and other enemies of Trump with really operatic audits during the Trump years. And uh, uh, it is confounding to me that we still have an IRS commissioner who, A, was the head of the agency that engaged in that, and and B, uh, it just as a Trump holdover generally, uh, two years nearly, into Biden's presidency. So I think a good ask for progressives is like, why is this guy still in there? <laughs> like, let's give him the hook. Let's get yeah. rid of this guy. Absolutely. Um, and uh, so, so I think that that is a, a, a good fight, you know, coming out of this. Wonderful. Well, well, thank you, David. Any last thoughts or anything you want to plug for the latest issue? What do you got? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, prospect.org, as you know, thank uh, uh, you guys for being, uh, well, one, for working for us and for the other, uh, for, you know, biggest uh, fan. Our, for our partnership, um, yeah. which I think has been really great for us. Um, uh, uh, you know, we were at it every day. Our next issue is going to be pretty good. Uh, we have a lot of uh, good stuff for it. Like I said, I'm, I'm writing about sort of uh, policymaking in the Democratic Party uh, as reflected by this uh, particular bill. Um, Ryan, maybe you could uh, give uh, the the preview. It's not for the next issue, but the one after that of uh, what you might be doing. Well, I'm trying to set up a trip to the uh, Faroe Islands to tell them <laughs> about they, they have the world's most intrusive tax authority. And that's <laughs> what we want to have here in the United States. We want to have the IRS looking at every penny in your pocket. <laughs> Um, Republicans will love that. Yeah, that's going to go over great. Um, no, but that's going to be really interesting about this, this completely, uh, novel way of, of administering the tax system and how that, uh, uh, really changes 
public behavior and uh, and and the way in which you think about taxes. Yeah. Um, Very cool. Hey, what's the spoiler alert? If I recall, Faroe Islands they um, they process all the taxes before you get paid or something. By the time you get the money, it's all yeah. taken care of. You're yeah. not paid, You're paid by, by the government. Yeah. 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 You yeah. for most people. Uh, the the employer sends the check to the government tax authority, and the tax authority takes out what you owe, and they send you the check. So all like virtually all paychecks are routed through a central authority. And you, you know, have some MMT stuff with this uh, this piece, right? <laughs> well, it's modern taxing. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it's modern taxation theory. Yeah, but um, you'll have to stay tuned for that one. I'm I'm still trying to nail down interviews and whatnot. But Very exciting. Anyway, thanks, David, for coming on. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. And one last thing I forgot to mention. This podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect magazine. If you support the show at $10 a month on Patreon, you get a free digital subscription to the website, plus a steeply discounted print subscription if you so want it. Support at $5 a month, and you'll get uh, access to our extensive library of bonus episodes. Or you can just listen to the free episodes and throw us a review and a rating if you're feeling generous. Otherwise, we'll see you later.